Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of ePROcast. I'm your host, The Big E, and before diving into the new episode, as an update, from now on, the Friday episodes will go live on Thursdays. So you'll get the new episode every Thursday. Set your reminders. Hope you are looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to give you as much value as I can, as usual. For this episode, which will be broken down into two parts, I talked to Ross Aitken, the Rugby World Cup Venues and Cities Director at World Rugby. In part one, we talked more about his story, about what he does besides his role with World Rugby. And of course, his experience and how it was during the um, Rugby World Cup in Japan last year, which was a huge success. Also, the venue he enjoyed the most and why. And also the story of his baby boy that was born in Japan while he was on his duty preparing for Rugby World Cup and all these challenges and how he faced them. So that was a lot of fun. Part one, hope you enjoy it. All right, everyone. So we are back with another episode and a new guest of the ePROcast. I have Ross Aitken uh, from Glasgow, Scotland now. <laughs> he, he recently moved from, uh, from Tokyo, Japan, where, where he was part of the, the venues, cities, and so on of the Rugby World Cup 2019 in Japan, which was a huge success. We talked to, uh, to Ronan uh, Doniger a few episodes back about it, how it was, how it impacted the community, and so on. And now it's uh, Ross's turn to to join me on, on the podcast and share his story and his experience and background. Uh, and we'll, in this episode, we'll be talking all about stadiums, the trends, why clubs, organizations are moving towards when it comes to the stadiums and so-called smart stadiums, uh, what this means, why organizations are putting a lot of eggs in this basket, particular basket, and why it's important for them to, to work in this direction. Ross, welcome to ePROcast, and I'll just let you share your story and your background, how you got into sports. This is also very interesting. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on, Huge. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, so uh, my journey has been quite um, quite normal, I would say. You know, I was uh, I was always into sport. I was um, a rugby player and a golfer uh, and an athlete when I was, when I was younger. Um, rugby was definitely my passion, and um, I went to went to university, studied sport at undergrad level, um, and came out at the end of at the end of my four years with a, a degree in sport, but no real idea of what I wanted to do with that degree. Um, I was lucky that I happened to be working as a as a sports coach for my local council um, when I was at university. So, the, the, I guess the obvious transition for me was to move into sports development. So, I was fortunate enough to get a job in Glasgow. And I worked in the, in Glasgow rugby development for for nearly six years, um, and I, I guess my my break into major events was the Glasgow twenty fourteen Commonwealth Games. I was um, working in rugby development, working on the legacy the legacy program um, in anticipation for that event when um, the rugby sevens competition manager job was advertised, and yeah, through through a little bit of fortune, um, they, their, the vacancy was still available. Um, a few months later, they hadn't been able to get get somebody to fill the post, so 
I stuck my hand up and, and put a name forward, and I was very fortunate enough to get that to get that role. Um, so I was just over twelve months working with the Glasgow twenty fourteen organising committee. We delivered a, a brilliant event at Ibrox Stadium, uh, the Rugby Sevens, and and yeah, I guess from there um, I had a really good relationship with the IRB, uh, now World Rugby, obviously, and. And after uh, after the Commonwealth Games, I was um, I was offered a role working with World Rugby down in London on the 2015 Rugby World Cup. Uh, did that for for uh, 12, 12, 15 months, um, and then turned my attention onto Japan. And I was very lucky to to be sent over to Japan for three years, and I worked on the 2019 project until we concluded there in November and, and returned to the UK in December. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a great journey and. And now I'm um, now I'm very much focused on the next World Cup in France, 2023. So for five years you've been now with uh, World Rugby. You've changed quite a little bit of uh, you know the roles within the organizations at uh, the organization. Uh, pardon me. Um, and also, um, I'll take the time and uh, congratulate uh, Ross for his interesting experience. And this is how his first uh, baby. Uh, got got to be born in, uh, in during this World Cup, basically in uh, in uh, in Japan. Just yeah, just just before, before just before. yeah. So so congrats, uh, congrats on on your one year old now. Uh, Thank you. Uh, is, Thank you. Is, yeah. yeah. And uh, um, how how was it? How challenging was it? It was it was much more challenging for my wife than me, <laughs> to, be, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it was it was amazing to have um, to have Innes out in Japan. It's brilliant, you know. He's born in Japan and, and qualifies to, to play rugby for Japan. Um, so there'll be a there'll be a discussion to be had when he's when he's old enough, um, whether he goes Scotland or Japan. But yeah, great great experience, um, challenging experience. Japan is a very interesting uh, culture. Uh, lots of bureaucracy, lots of forms to fill in. The number of forms are just frightening. I'm still completing forms now. Is he Japanese now? Singing? Is he Japanese? He's uh, he's not Japanese. No, he's <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, he's not Japanese at all. Um, but no, he's so he's born born in Japan, but he doesn't get a Japanese passport. Doesn't get anything. I guess no no rights in Japan because none of the parents were were Japanese, and he doesn't really have any um, anything permanent in Japan. I guess it's just just a birth certificate. That's really all he comes away with. Um, no citizenship or, or passport or anything. But, um, but yeah, no, it was a, an interesting experience, put it that way. And we're, we're both delighted to have a, a healthy, happy little boy. And he's, as you say, he's just, he's just turned one. And um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And um, also congrats on your uh, recent uh, role change from um, Rugby World Cup venues and cities manager to director, which of course brings more responsibility, more, uh, um, more, you know, more fun. Um, you're also got to... I guess extended your uh, your uh, duties for Rugby World Cup in 2023, which is going to be in France. So, um, how how much you're looking forward to it, and how you think uh, France uh, edition of the World Cup could be better than than Japan? Um, I'll start with the last question first. I mean, uh, will it be better? I don't know. It'll certainly it'll be different. It'll be a different tournament, and there'll, there'll definitely be things that they they'll be able to do better. Whether it's through technology, the stadiums that we're using, the broadcast, um, but there'll, there'll be other things that they'll really struggle to, I guess, to to meet. Um, Japan was amazing. The 
I guess the, the main thing about Japan was was the support over there, the spectators, everybody bought into the tournament. Um, you could really tell that whatever city you went to, whatever host city you went to, you were you were welcomed. And you know, we had forty or fifty thousand uh, applicants um, for for the volunteer program. I think we were only able to have 10, 10 or twelve thousand in the end, um, but all of them wanted to be involved because they wanted to display the Japanese amotenashi, which is Japanese hospitality. They wanted to share Japan with the world, and yeah, that, I think that just lifted the tournament more than more than anything else. Um, in terms of the role, the role hasn't actually changed that much. The job title has changed. Um, that's more, I guess, it's more around who we're working with. Our role as as World Rugby and the Rugby World Cup team is to work with the organising committee to to ensure that they are delivering what we need them to deliver, and just to be there to guide and support them really. So it makes sense for for our roles to. To, to be at a, a level that meets our counterpart in the organising committee, and that's I guess where the role the role title change is coming. But my role is is quite broad. I am venues and cities director, and that covers a number of a number of areas. I look after the, the venue side, so operations, overlaying, and uh, and development, um, city operations, and of any image and look um, application. I'll, I'll work quite closely with our partners on the delivery of that. Uh, and then I'm, I guess, one of the one of the points of contact for broadcast operations, commercial operations as well, and, and spectator engagement. Um, and then the other thing that I've kind of taken on more recently is is ceremonies and sports presentation, which is which is quite a, an interesting and exciting part of the role as well. So we've got a really broad broad remit. We're quite a small team in world rugby, and we cover off quite a few areas. But it's um it's a very very enjoyable role. And, yeah, very much looking forward to France 2023 and the excitement. All right, and the world experienced um, this uh, Japanese culture, especially the videos and pictures of you know uh, how they clean after you know the game is finished. You know, this just was a great thing to to follow, and uh, kudos to 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 uh, World Rugby for sharing this um, on how cool it is and how it should be done. From my perspective, yeah, I mean, I mean, they were doing that before. They were, you know, this is again, this is a cultural thing. It's a very, very clean, hygienic society. You know, you see, you know, there's obviously a big, big debate at the moment happening, and certainly in the UK around the, the wearing of face coverings and face masks. And in Japan, that's, that's normal now. It wasn't 50, 60, 70 years ago, but it's normal now for for everybody. You know, if if you are either um, if you're if you're ill or you're you know you're coughing or anything, you wear you wear a mask it's, it's to protect others, not to protect yourself. That's kind of first and foremost. So a very respectful society, very respectful culture, and a very clean society. So you know you see from the football World Cup, um, we saw it in in, um, in in Glasgow as well when we had uh, Japanese teams playing playing football over in Scotland. All of the supporters clean up clean up after themselves, and yes, yeah, so it's it's brilliant to watch and. You know, you'd like to think that that culture will rub off on on other uh, on other countries and other fans because it's it's a really right. good one. Uh, so, Ross, moving back to uh, to earlier days, I'll call it this way. Um, right before your first job in in sports, uh, what was the uh, first of all? What was your motivation, and how, if you remember, how was it? when you first start your first position in sports and what was the crucial moment that you decided, I want to do that? Yeah, crucial moment. It started long before I was in university. I um, I always wanted to be involved in sport. Um, I guess initially I wanted to be a professional athlete. I wanted to play, um, whether it would be a professional sprinter, rugby player, golfer. 
I wanted to be wanted to be a, you know a, a, an athlete. And when I realised that wasn't happening, fortunately, I was already you know moving towards a career in sport, and um, it, it made sense for me to go and do sports studies at the, the the local university at Stirling University or University of Stirling which is just down the road from where I was brought up in Dunblane, um, had, a, had a fantastic sports programme, which is up in, in the top one or two in, in the UK at the time. Um, and it was a, a no-brainer for me really to, to enrol into that course and, and follow, follow the, the sport career path. That being said, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I think there are quite a lot of people that come out. I think you, you still don't know what you want to do, Huge. Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure either but it's um, you know you come out of university with a degree and you know I think there's there's some very fortunate people who know what they want to do and I was one of the people that I didn't really know what I wanted to do but I knew what I was qualified to do um, and I knew what, where my experience lay as well and I guess what, what was what was really fortunate for me was I was able to work in sport while I was at university and it was it was working with the local development team you know delivering taster sessions, sports programs, helping coordinate some programs and um in, in local schools and, and summer camps, etc. I guess that experience and, and getting that work experience during my studies was really beneficial because it not, not only did it help me understand what working in sport was like, it was also a differentiator for me. Everybody comes out of, of university with the same, you know, the same degree, the same piece of paper. What is it? That you've done in addition to that that differentiates you, and, and for, for me it was having that that um, that work experience as well, which allowed me to step into um, into my first role. Right, and when we're talking, um, we always uh, aspire to uh, develop ourselves, you know, continuous development and so on. And you're currently also involved in a master's program, if I'm not mistaken. How does that? How does it go? <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. So I'm, I've got. What, three or four months left of my MBA that I've been working on for the last three years. Um, I must admit, this, I, I bit off a lot more than, than I can chew. Um, I didn't realise how, how time-consuming, how difficult it would be. I started it in 2018, so not long after we moved to Japan, I decided to enrol into a, a course with the, the University of Manchester, the Global Programme. And it's been, it's been really good, really beneficial, but... Um, yeah, I cannot wait for it to be over. Trying to do, a, I guess, a master's as well as working full time and and having a young baby. Um, yeah, our relationship to the test, shall we say? But we're new. That's crazy, mm-hmm. um, Russ. When when it comes to sports, sports business, I know you've been into venues, you've been into the um, organization, call it this way. You know, operations of uh, of the rugby tournament at Commonwealth Games and so on. But still, from what you know so far, for being years and years in the industry, what is the um, the area that you like the most so far? That you know, potentially you might get there at one point. But if if there wouldn't be a stadium at this point, or you know, uh, this this area, what would be the one that you would love to to work in? So, what would be what part of sport yeah. would I like to be to be involved in? Um, good question. Um, <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't really know yet. I'm still I'm still trying to work that out. I am um, I, I really enjoy the business of sport. I you know that's why I'm doing my MBA. I wanted to get I guess a more a more general view of how, how businesses operate than than just going down the sport the sport management route. Um, but I want to remain in sport. Um, I think anybody that's working in sport you can count yourselves very lucky. It's it's a passion for a lot of people, and to be able to to do that and get paid for it is 
you know, is is um, is a really good thing and a very fortunate thing. Um, I I think what you know, maybe thinking out loud, I'd love to be involved in a club environment at some point. You know, I've I've played for a, my local rugby club for for many years and. Um, not a professional club, an amateur club, and I was in, in and around the Glasgow Warriors professional team when I was working in Glasgow as a development officer. And, and uh, yeah, I think working working in the club environment would be would be something that I would like to, to get involved in at some stage. I've, um, I've started watching Sunderland Till I Die. I don't know if you've seen the documentary on, on Netflix. I've started watching that. Um, I'm not sure football clubs, the environment I want to go into, that's a quite high stressful environment, but... Again, I just find that it's interesting and it's, it's something that I might want to experience uh, at some point in my career. But at, at the moment, I'm just very much enjoying being, being part of the Rugby World Cup team. Um, I'm very passionate about the sport, very passionate about, about the event, the tournament itself, um, and you know, work with a great bunch of people at World Rugby. We've got a really, really good, really strong team. And uh, yeah, so it's a pleasure to be involved in that, in that team and, and work with them you know, every day of the week. It's, it's a lot of fun. And I hope that continues for, for a little while longer. Um, when it comes to stadia and stadia management, and we're talking stadia in general, because um, when, when we say stadium is only the venue, when we're talking stadia, and that's for the listeners, stadia is everything around it, you know, the city, the, every, even the people involved, um, the citizens of that city and so on. Um, and we can make this con- with, you know, as a connection with Rugby World Cup uh, in Japan last year. Uh, what is the biggest challenge when it comes to this area at the moment? Like, what, what comes to you first to your mind? Um, well, I guess we, defi- we define our stadiums as venues. Um, and the venues, because I guess we would probably define a stadium as the, the, concrete, the concrete walls of the stadium. Um, the venue itself is, is anything within the venue perimeter. And sometimes that can be you know, car park spaces, broadcast compounds, um, any temporary builds. We, we, we have a lot of temporary builds in, in Rugby World Cup. Um, so that's how we would define a venue and then your venue precinct. Um, and then and then we've got the, I think in the Olympic terms, they call it the last mile. We call it, I guess, our our spectator journey from where the transport hub is all the way to the venue. Um, the challenge is that every every venue, every city is different. Every country you go to is different. There's different different models. You know, in Japan, the, the majority of the stadiums were, were owned and operated by the city. So the, I guess with that, there are lots of benefits and there are additional challenges that you have. Um, you know, just as an example, um, some of the venues that we used in Japan, they were um, they were city owned and they were also used as I guess health centres. So taking full use of a venue. Um, and having exclusive use, uninterrupted exclusive use, uh, meant that the local residents couldn't come midweek and use the use the swimming pool, you know, visit the physios that were maybe based out there, and and, uh, and that that's where we we have to ensure there's some flexibility into our into our contracts and into the way that we that we manage these uh, these facilities. Um, it's obviously it's the organising committees that will manage the venues. We're we're there to to guide and, and advise on what they should be doing, and, and we we I guess approve what. what use we we think is is needed for for the tournament and then what what use we would be happy to accommodate within the, the general public use how uh, Ross, how you how you are we're working with the um, explain explain to, to myself and the listeners how you is whenever is an event like this rugby world cup or any other event how will the government body 
World Rugby in this case, works with the local authorities to make it happen? What's how long you have you had to be there in Japan before the event? And like, if you can walk us through this journey. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll give you an overview of how it, how it's structured. So. Um, we are the international federation for the sport. We own the, the Rugby World Cup tournament. We award the hosting of that tournament to, to our union. So in, in Japan, it was the Japan Rugby Football Union. Now moving into 2023, we actually, it's a tripartite agreement where we, we've awarded the tournament to France. And that's an agreement between France 2023, the organising committee and the government. So the government are now an invested partner um, in, in the delivery of the tournament, which is, which is great for us gives us a bit more security and also gives us a bit more support as well from, from the government and, and the local cities. Um, the role of managing the venues, that comes very much back to the organising committee. The organising committee themselves, they'll engage with the host cities, they'll engage with the venue owners. And they, uh, the contracts will, will be between um, the organising committee and those cities and venues. So our, our role, I guess, is, is still it's a very much an overseeing, advising and guiding, and guiding role. Um, we don't engage in any contracts with the cities and, and on, on the main, on the whole, we don't really uh, engage in any conversations with the cities either. We'll, we'll work with the organising committee um, to ensure that any, any discussions and decisions that are, are being taken are with everybody's best interest and the tournament's best interest at heart. So that's, that's I guess, how the structure works. Um, and and yeah, then it's down to the individual organising committees, how they want to set up the relationships with with the cities and how they how they want to staff themselves to, to manage those relationships. The the challenge that you have is you know some venues being by being owned by the, the city, some some are privately owned. It's trying to get consistency in what we do. Um, and, and as I said before, it's trying to uh, it's trying to accommodate you know potentially existing user groups when uh, you know we're we're bumping in for a short period of time into a venue and then bumping out again. You want to try and uh, try and accommodate where possible all the other stakeholders that perhaps utilize that venue on a regular basis as well. So it's a, it's a very individual thing. Yeah. Um, and the next question is more, it might fall under your umbrella, it might not, or if you have any connection to it, is about how, and specifically for Rugby World Cup in, in Japan, how the, venue, the specific venue was chosen for a specific game. Because, of course, when we're talking... New Zealand, England for a semi-final at the uh, uh, Rugby World Cup. You want the biggest stadium because definitely it's going to be sold out, even even if it's not a, a semi-final. But a game like Georgia versus Tonga might not bring more than 20,000 people. Like how how the venues are specifically chosen for specific games? Like if you if you have any. Yeah, that. yeah. So we, uh, we, we've got we've got a group that would work work with um, with the organising committee, and, and and we decide, I guess, what matches go where. Um, it's all kind of, I guess, calculated. We, as as you say, the obvious answer. You know, we've you don't put big teams and big matches into small venues because they'll the demand for tickets would just be would just be crazy. Um, but you also want to make sure that you're getting a good spread around the country. So. In Japan, we had um, we had twelve venues. We had one up in Sapporo in, in Hokkaido, uh, and then we had three down in Kyushu in the South Island, and then the rest were on the main island. And we wanted to make sure that, that I guess the, the teams got a good a good experience and a good spread across the country. And in addition to that, though, you, you know, we had Kamaishi Stadium, which I can I can tell you about in a second. That was a sixteen thousand capacity stadium. We were never going to put 
any of the, I guess, the, the top teams into that venue because it just they just the venue wouldn't have been able to cope with the demand. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and that's why you know we have big venues, we have small venues, and uh, that's what makes the Rugby World Cup having these kind of smaller, intimate venues and and I guess allowing spectators to see some teams that they would never normally get to see. But yeah, you, you answered the question yourself. It's, it's, it's very much driven by capacity um, and uh, where we think big matches need to be played. Because at the end of the day, you know, we, we do want to ensure that the organising committee are covering costs and and uh, and, and earning revenue because um, they're they're responsible for the ticketing programme. You know, it makes sense for, for them to try and maximise that as much as possible and, and we support that. Yep. Uh, from all the venues uh, in, in Japan, which was your favorite, if we can put it this way? Um, yeah, no, no brainer. Kamaishi. Um, so you you might be familiar with the, the story of Kamaishi, but I'll, I'll certainly share it. So we, um, we selected the venues in January 2015. We went out to Japan and we did a tour around the country. And I guess one of the one of the most unlikely venues was, was Kamaishi. And for those of you that don't know, Kamaishi City um, was devastated in the 2011 Great Japan earthquake uh, and tsunami. And um, when we arrived in, in 2015 to, to go and visit the city and meet with the city to discuss the venue, um, the city was still very much in its recovery phase. It had been devastated four years prior and it was still very much recovering. You know, you, you drove down the main road, I remember it vividly, and, and on the right-hand side of the road, you know, the, the, the city was decimated, the, you know, buildings collapsed, just rubble everywhere, no real sign of recovery on the le- on the right. And you look over to the left and, and you know, signs of, signs of recovery, buildings are up, hotels are starting to operate again, you know, local businesses are starting to, to operate again. And I've got to say, it was, it was devastating and, and lots of people lost lost their lives um, but rugby was a huge part and still is a huge part of, of Kamaishi and you know they've got a professional rugby team there the Kamaishi Sea Waves um, former All Black Peter Alatini was head coach and actually Scott Fardy who played for Australia in the 2015 Rugby World Cup final he was playing for the Sea Waves at the time and they stayed in Kamaishi and they helped you know, support the recovery and rugby was a huge part of that recovery so we went out with, with you know, not huge expectations, but wanting to know, you know, would this city and would this, you know, would these people be capable of delivering a rugby world cup uh, here in Kamaishi? And you know, we got there, we met the local people, and and uh, we were, we were shown the 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 the, uh, the model of the venue that they were proposing to build. It's <laughs> the venue looked nothing like the model that they showed us four years prior, but it was um, wasn't fun. Um, but what what came came out kind of straight away was you know, how, how special would it be to host Rugby World Cup here and you know you weren't thinking about how, how does the city fit in with Rugby World Cup and what can this city do for the tournament it was the total opposite it was what can Rugby World Cup do to support uh, support Kamaishi and support the recovery here and, you know it's um, you know, a process that, that I was involved in and, and something I'm very proud to have been involved in and uh, yeah we, we, we selected we selected Kamaishi the venue itself was built on the site of a, an elementary school that was destroyed in the tsunami. Um, a remarkable story where the, the children were evacuated from, from the school up into the mountains into a safe house and they actually decided they weren't safe enough and they led the teachers even higher into the mountains and the, the safe house halfway up the hill was, was destroyed by the tsunami which I guess shows you the scale of the tsunami that came through in 2011. So it's a wonderful, a wonderful, I guess, you know, story is uh, 
in a, in a very tragic thing. Was the uh, Russ, Russ, was the uh, stadium already built when you were there in 2015, or it was no, no, it was just a, it was the, the foundations weren't even in. It was very much just a, a, a space that had been flattened from where the where the elementary school once stood, and we went stood on the site. Um, and we, you know, I remember a, there was a guy standing on the hill to mark the the level the water came to. You could see by the I guess the tree line where the tree line had been taken out. Um, about how high the water was and how significant the tsunami was. But we stood there with myself, um, my colleague Linda and my colleague um, Alan Gilpin, who's our head of Rugby World Cup. And uh, we, met, we met the locals there and you know, one, one lady had been in the water for two days. Another had family members and the bodies still hadn't been found. And yeah, it was just, it was such a touching, you know, touching experience and to be able to, I guess, support the decision to take Rugby World Cup to Kamaishi and, and do our very best was was something that was uh, I'm certainly very proud of. Um, we obviously had the typhoon come through in 2019, and it was very sad that we had to had to cancel one of the matches at Kamaishi. They only had um, they only had one match there, Fiji versus Uruguay, uh, and the second match, Namibia, unfortunately, was cancelled. And we can't forget that lots of people lost their lives in that typhoon, and it was it was the right decision to to cancel matches to to preserve life and make sure. That People's safety was the priority. But, um, it says a lot about rugby. The Canadian team that were supposed to play in Kamaishi, they went out the next day and they helped with the recovery um, of, of Kamaishi after that typhoon came through. So it's another it's another example of how you know I guess rugby is is, uh, is helping that community, and that's a, another fantastic story. But no brainer, Kamaishi was definitely my favourite favourite venue uh, in the World Cup in 20, uh, 2019. And, yeah, very, very proud and got very fond memories of that of that city. Definitely, stories like this are you know creating that uh, legacy uh, when it comes to why why Rugby World Cup 2019 is was important for for uh, for Japan as a nation, and we've seen a great progress from from their uh, national um, national rugby. From where they were three years ago, for example, and where they're now, you know, beating top teams in the in, in the world. Um, of course, 2015 versus uh, South Africa this year. Yeah. Uh, last year it was uh, against Scotland, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> and Ireland. Scotland and Ireland. Yeah, no, the uh, the Japan team were fantastic, and yeah, you know, I don't want to say they made that made the tournament, but it certainly helped. You know, having the host nation do well. Um, what was something that, that we couldn't have asked for? It was it was brilliant to see. Um, yes, it came at the expense of my my countrymen. Unfortunately, um, that 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 was the match that, that went ahead. We managed to get the the Japan Scotland match um, to go ahead. You know, the day after the tsunami, the tsunami. The apologies, the typhoon typhoon hit. Um, and yeah, we were really fortunate to get that game ahead and. For, uh, fortunately, we um, yeah we were able to deliver it, and it was probably the best the best match of the tournament, uh, arguably the best tour- match of the tournament anyway. And even for Scotland, I was there with my I was there with my wife and my son, uh, my son's first experience of a of a Scotland international. Uh, unfortunately, I lost, but at the same time, it was yeah a wonderful occasion, and I'm delighted that we, we were able to get that. Now that was it for the part one of this awesome conversation with Ross. I enjoyed it a lot. The next part will go live on Monday. So go check it out. 
stay tuned. I hope you have an awesome rest of the week and of course, enjoying your weekend. Stay safe. Please, please keep those reviews and feedbacks coming. If you have any questions, shoot them on my social. The links will be in the episode notes and looking forward to see you in the next one. Stay safe. Ciao.